You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Rwanda's investigation bureau has confirmed the arrest of over 80 people during the just-concluded week of commemoration of the genocide. They are accused of being involved in the genocide denial act of endangering lives of survivors. Some analysts believe that this contradicts the ongoing narrative where figures from national unity and reconciliation commissions suggest that unity and reconciliation amongst Rwandans stand at 92%. Silvanus Karamera reports from Kigali. The most common crimes committed during the commemoration week were use of the derogatory language towards genocide survivors, damaging property of genocide survivors, acts and words that distorted the history of the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda, against the Tutsi in Rwanda. With just 24 hours before the start of the genocide commemoration week, Abrana Field belongs to one Mukamurenzi Hirali and her husband, all survivors of genocide against the Tutsi and residents of Mahaga district in the western part of Rwanda, remained in the shadow of disbelief that morning for what they had spotted. We got to know about it in the morning. My husband was feeding the cows, and the child came to ask if he had cut the banana plantation himself. He declined. He went to see and saw everything cut down. It was devastating. Unidentified people had destroyed their banana plantation and bean fields. The family says is saddened by the existence of some people who still have a genocide ideology to an extent of destroying property belonging to the survivors. During the week of mourning, 12 charges were also filed in Nyarujenje district, one of the three Kigali city districts, on suspicion of denying genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda, including a resident who set fire on the, who set fire on the street saying he was remembering the Hutus whom he admitted were killed in the genocide in 1994. Survivors of the genocide against the Tutsi and the Rwandan community condemned such genocidal ideology saying it could have negative impact of the country's unity and reconciliation journey thus far. If you still have a genocide ideology, it's a clear indication that you are an idiot. When you hate, you become an idiot. That does not help you in any way other than putting your life in trouble. When one has gone off track, it is difficult to turn him around. We can only try to console those that have been affected and tell them the truth. Such criminals should be isolated. Nyarijine District Executive Administrator Eminga Bonziza says all the suspects have been detained and will face justice. There is one incident where a person set up a fire on the road and claimed that he was remembering the Hutus killed during the genocide. He was arrested. The other issue is of some people who use derogatory languages towards genocide survivors, telling them that commemoration period is a time to praise the dead, you understand? And that is genocide denial. Rwanda Investigation Bureau, RIB, has received 66 cases this week related to the genocide ideology and denial. Its spokesperson, Dr. Thierry Murangira, says crimes of genocide denial and ideology will not be tolerated. Generally, the cases received in total were 87, but after investigations, we established that 83 cases had evidence of genocide denial. We should not be having such cases. People should avoid anything that carries genocide ideology tendencies. Currently, there are 66 people detained on charges of genocide ideology and denial, which were targeted towards six survivors 
of genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. Silvanos Kalemera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. The Trade Law Center, or TRALIC, says members of Africa's new free trade area should complete their tariff rejection schedules and finalize essential rules of origin by July 2021 to start trading. TRALIC further points out that state parties need to update their tariff book with the codes and descriptions of the products on offer. It says trade is only possible once the rules of origin have been agreed upon. TRALIC was hosting a virtual update on the Africa Continental Free Trade Area. Naledi Ngobo reports. Executive Director at Trelec Trudy Hardenberg says the rules of origin that stipulate which goods will be subjected to tariffs and duties must be finalized for trade to commence. African countries officially started trading under the African Continental Free Trade Area or AFCTA from the 1st of January 2021. However, negotiations among all 54 member states are still underway. The AFCTA aims to phase out 90% of tariff lines over the next 10 years. Heads of state approve the schedules of tariff offers for trade, provided they meet the agreed modalities. The reciprocity requirement must be respected, and trade is only possible if the rules of origin have been agreed. Finally, of course, the countries must be customs ready. And part of being customs ready means that they've updated the tariff book so the traders know what the tariffs are. Founder of the Trade Law Center, Professor Gerhard Erasmus, says state parties of the AFCTA are not prevented from concluding trade agreements with other countries which are not members of the agreement. So if Kenya is going to enter into a trade investment agreement with the United States and the tariffs on the goods that they trade between each other are lower for the same goods that have been agreed upon in the AFCFTA, that is not... Um, illegal or uh, in, in, in violation of the AFCFTA. What the AFCFTA says here, then you must also make it possible for other African countries who are interested to enter into the same type of deal with you and also on a reciprocal basis. Erasmus says the decision to start trade on the 1st of January 2021 was an interim agreement towards early trade for countries which have finalized their rules of origin. Erasmus says no trade will take place for countries on the continent until all processes have been completed. As a result, apparently, of political pressure and animus, there was a decision on the 5th of December to start early trade on the 1st of January. But the early trade will not be on the continent. It will only be uh, between those very specific countries that have finalized uh, tariff offers that have been uh, accepted by others on the basis of reciprocity and for which there are rules of origin. Afrixin Bank will be the partner in charge of ruling out the Pan-African Payment and Settlement System for Intra-African Trade and Commerce Payments. I'm Nalidin Ngobo in Johannesburg. There is pandemonium in Zimbabwe following the announcement early this week that the National Youth Service is resuming soon. While the idea for introducing the service in the early 2000s, most Zimbabweans 
ended up condemning it as it used to be to breed hatred and anarchy in the political sphere. The program, whose aim was to instill in young Zimbabweans a sense of national identity and patriotism, ended up being disbanded in 2018 after the fall of then-President Robert Mugabe. More from our correspondent John Kasim in Harare, Zimbabwe. During the height of violent land grabs in Zimbabwe in 2000, come and established the National Youth Service Training with the inaugural team placed in Mount Darwin, north of Harare. The program was introduced by the then Minister of Youth, the late Bodagezi, and the graduates were later known as the Bodagezi Youths. Any young person between the ages of 10 and 30 were eligible for the National Youth Service. By then, the aim was to transform and empower youth for nation-building through life skills training and leadership development. The country was deeply divided then over land ownership and violent land grabs that saw more than 30 white commercial white farmers being killed. Unfortunately, some Bodagese graduates were seen clad in their green uniforms beating up the white farmers off their land. These youths were allegedly also used in various acts of violence, including election campaigns, especially the bloody 2008 presidential runoff. Murders were allegedly committed, but no one is yet to be prosecuted, such that when the youth training was banned in 2018, Zimbabweans celebrated. However, government has rescinded its own decision and is reintroducing the National Youth Service, attracting a lot of condemnation in the country and beyond. Here is what other citizens said regarding this idea. This, that border case is army for only for ZANPF, not for benefit of the country. I think the government must think twice to do this job. Why? What is the reason of a training border case? What for? There is no war in this country. We, all, we have enough soldiers, we have enough police in this country. Why, why are they, aid, or are they want to aid these people? Why? For what reason? The reintroduction of Bodagis is wrong. And as NPF government pushing for this, they don't realize they're about to make a very big mistake. Just imagine after Bodagis was closed, but the society is still suffering, you know, hate, still suffering. There's a lot of division trauma as it is with most of the citizens we have experienced bad experience i personally bodegas was formed around 2000 i was a teenager it was bad the things that i saw the things happened to me directly i had to spend nights in the bush hiding from these guys schools were closed we had to learn from home you know i don't see any good reason for the reintroduction of bodegas as good as it is on paper as good as they are trying to present it, but we know in reality it's just something that is evil, that is not good for a nation. According to the Movement for Democratic Change Alliance, led by Nelson Chamisa, the reintroduction of the National Youth Service paints the current government as evil. When President Emerson Nangagwa repealed several laws upon his assumption of presidential office, the world believed in him that he was indeed a reformed man. This is no longer the case, MDC Alliance Youth Chairperson Stephen Sarkozy Chuma said. In the past, our people have gone through untold suffering at the hands of graduates of National Youth Service. 
who went on a rampage in rural areas killing people uh, burning cattle burning houses and all sorts of property in rural areas we know that the very same people who were at the center of instigating violence in 2008 are now uh, the very same people at the helm of power in zimbabwe we know that uh, emerson Mnangagwa and his uh, right hand man uh, comrade chwenga they are seeking to hold on to power by any means necessary because they know very well that they are going to be thumbed uh, by mdc alliance presidential candidate uh, advocate Nelson chamisa therefore they are creating they are creating and laying a ground for violence to resist uh, the electoral outcome of the impending 2023 general elections chuma added as the mdc alliance we believe that uh, an ideal national youth service must be patriotic and patriotism encompasses the feeling or the love of the people because for one to love his own country he must love the people but what we have seen in the graduates of national youth service is that they do not love the people but actually they are more interested in burning people's property and even going to the extent of butchering people so that they support ZANU-PF. In Arari, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is John Kasim. Welcome to Change Your Game here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Peta. What uh, GDF Forum is about and what an opportunity it provides specifically for the audience of Change Your Game. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. More support, just like invest more in young creatives and entrepreneurship, but actually do it, don't just talk about it, actually do it, you know, because there are a lot of creative minds, there are a lot of intelligent human beings in our country, so I think we should invest more in that and take it seriously, because it's a real thing. Catch us every Friday at 900 hours Central African time with Channel Africa, the African Perspective. It's 7.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now, according to the recently released SNG Grant Thornton's Sub-Saharan Fraud Survey, 60% of respondents cited employees are currently the biggest threat to their businesses when it comes to fraud, with 77% expecting this to increase in 2021. As such, according to the survey, it is vital for companies to implement ways to safeguard their businesses from internal fraud, especially in light of employees working from home as a result of COVID-19. Alexei Ravsky, CEO and co-founder at Zakurian, a vendor of next-generation data loss prevention, now joins us on the line from Russia to discuss this further. Alexei, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Good morning, Lolo. Good morning, everybody. Now, talk to us about the survey and how it was conducted. Uh, actually, actually, the problem of uh, employees' fraud is uh, very important nowadays. 
uh, I would like to refer to the Global Study on Occupational Fraud and Abuse, which was published uh, in, uh, uh, in the beginning of the last year. And uh, it refers not only to Africa, but uh, the, whole, uh, the whole world. They uh, analyzed cases from uh, uh, 250 countries. And uh, they found that uh, the damage from this uh, internal fraud is huge. Uh, they uh, estimated uh, the total losses in global economy uh, or about four trillion U.S. dollars. This is more than uh, spending of U.S. national budget, and uh, it's uh, it's around five percent of uh, the uh, revenue of the company's revenue, uh, and it's also big amount if you analyze financials of uh, bigger uh, big corporations. You can find that five percent is uh, uh, is might be less uh, is more than uh, net income of uh, organizations. Now, why are businesses at risk of employee fraud, and why is this expected to increase in twenty twenty one? Actually, actually, it's uh, because of the context uh, context uh, of massive remote work in uh, in the situation of uh, COVID. Uh, uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, so uh, there are two aspects here. First of all, uh, bigger economic uh, uncertainty and uh, instability, and uh, employees uh, find the way to uh, improve their uh, financial <coughs> financial situation uh, uh, in the uh, uh, in the of uh, their employees. Uh, and second, uh, uh, second reason is that in the remote work, uh, employees feel more relaxed. They are, in fact, less controlled. They feel uh, less uh, overview from their management, from their organizations. So they uh, tend to um, allow themselves more than in a classical office environment. Now, Alexei, what's the impact of internal fraud on businesses? Uh, actually, actually, as I said, uh, um, uh, the impact is huge. Uh, according to this global study, it's uh, it's around uh, uh, four trillion US dollars uh, annually losses due to occupational fraud and abuse every year. And uh, uh, average case per organization is around 1.5 million US dollars. And let's speak about, uh, uh, you know, your company, Zakurian, uh, which has released a new version of its FOMO solution, Zakurian DLP. How is this going to assist businesses and, uh, you know, to safeguard their operations? Actually, uh, actually, we introduced <coughs> next generation DLP as a natural evolution of uh, the DLP technology. Uh, classical DLP technology uh, protects from data leakages only, but uh, internal fraud uh, and uh, internal threats has uh, uh, more um, has bigger uh, scale of issues of uh, problems that. Uh, uh, security officers uh, in the organizations uh, need to solve. 
so we added uh, but but uh, DLP technology in fact it's a good uh, basis uh, good foundation for uh, for this uh, advanced technologies so we introduced uh, two types of technologies that are not provided by classical DLP systems those are advanced control capabilities so we can control not only uh, classical uh, data leakage channels such as peripheral devices, uh, email, uh, web, uh, messenger, social networks, but uh, we also control, um, uh, we can also record uh, uh, screenshots from user screens. Uh, we protect uh, uh, information uh, from being photographed uh, by employees. Uh, uh, by their smartphones and so on. And also we have advanced uh, <clears throat> advanced intelligence capabilities that help uh, security officers uh, in uh, conducting forensic investigations uh, such as uh, we have uh, we can display a uh, map, connection map of uh, employees we can uh, uh, we have a user behavior analysis module which can uh, help security officers to quickly understand uh, which employees they need uh, to pay more attention to. And what's the reaction been like in the market space? Uh, actually, you mean reaction to these technologies? Yes, reaction to um, your particular, uh, the, the new version of uh, the for your solutions, the Curian DLP. What are businesses, how are businesses reacting to this? And are they, um, you know, jumping up in terms of definitely needing your services and so on? Uh, actually, you know, in internal fraud is a quite unpleasant problem. And uh, for, for a long time, uh, uh, most organizations, most uh, top C-level uh, guys uh, were reluctant to discuss this problem because, uh, you know, employees, uh, employees uh, are your uh, asset and uh, you uh, tend to protect uh, your guys, your team, rather than to suspect them in uh, some, uh, some fraud and some damage to your organization. But uh, currently... Currently, the situation is changing, and uh, the perception of this uh, topic is also changing. And uh, we see increasing interest uh, to these technologies, uh, especially especially in uh, Africa, in African countries. And um, uh, we expect that uh, this interest uh, will be increasing in the next years. Alexei, thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Thank you. Thank you, Lulu. Thank you, everybody. That was Alexei Vravsky, CEO and co-founder at Zakurian, a vendor of a next-generation data loss prevention, DLP. And he was speaking to us from Russia. It's 7.28 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet, Channel 802, and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. There's nothing good about alcohol. Alcohol is destructive. Alcohol destroys families. Alcohol destroys life. Alcohol contributes to unprotected sex and spreading of diseases. Alcohol 
contributes to domestic violence, abuse of children and women. Channel Africa. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. There's nothing good about alcohol. Alcohol is destructive. Alcohol destroys families. Alcohol destroys life. Alcohol contributes to unprotected sex and spreading of diseases. Alcohol contributes to domestic violence, abuse of children and women. Channel Africa. It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with on. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Mozambique has expressed its reluctance to accept troops from neighboring member states of the Southern African Development Community in the fight against Islamic insurgents in the north of the country. South Africa's Health Minister, Dr. Zwelim Kize, says his department has secured an agreement with Pfizer to increase its doses from 20 million to 30 million. And over 60 people have been arrested amid protests in the U.S. city of Minneapolis. Channel Africa News, I am Onilin Sinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Onele. New research by Amnesty International says bear the devastating consequences of statelessness in Zimbabwe, where hundreds of thousands hope to live in a country where they are treated equally, regardless of their political affiliation or ethnicity. The organization interviewed descendants of migrant workers who settled in Zimbabwe pre-independence, as well as survivors of the Gukurahundi massacre of the 1980s. The two groups have been locked out of citizenship by a cruel combination of discrimination and bureaucracy. For more on their plight, we are now joined on the line by researcher at Amnesty International, Lloyd Kavea. Lloyd, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, uh, Lulu. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Now, Lloyd, briefly explain how so many people find themselves stateless in Zimbabwe? Uh, firstly, Lulu, thank you very much. Firstly, it, it has to do with uh, the legal and policy framework which has locked out uh, the two distinct groups that we have, uh, we have described. So uh, the Citizenship Act, which was adopted in 1984, has got uh, contradictory, unfair and discriminatory provisions that has excluded people who were born in Zimbabwe of their right to a nationality. Uh, it, uh, it, it, uh, in 2001, it was uh, amended by the state uh, where 
citizens or people who came from Sadiq uh, countries before independence um, were required in 2001 to renounce citizenship of their country of origin. They were given six months to do that. Many of them failed to do so because of a variety of reasons, whether they were not aware of that amendment and also those who were aware, uh, it became the cost of doing so was quite prohibitive for them. Now so you, the first, uh, sorry, go ahead. So that that is the first uh, thing that happened that excluded uh, uh, the ma- migrants from Mozambique, Malawi, Zambia, um, and how, that's how they were they were excluded. And uh, dual citizenship uh, was also prohibited. So they they could not renounce citizenship of countries that they had never been to. Many of them were born here in Zimbabwe. They don't even know the villages that their parents came from uh, in Malawi, Mozambique, or Zambia. Uh, So they considered Zimbabwe as their home, and therefore they considered themselves to be citizens of Zimbabwe. But unfortunately, they were excluded by this discriminatory uh, provision, which is actually contrary to what the Zimbabwe Constitution says. Uh, In Section 43 of of the current Constitution, it it provides that um, any person who is born in Zimbabwe to a parent who came from a, 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 a neighboring study country is entitled to citizenship. And, and why do they not have, uh, Lloyd, why do they not have citizenship? Because if that's the policy currently, and, uh, you know, they are born in Zimbabwe and they've never been to their uh, countries or their parents' countries of origin, why are we still facing a situation or a crisis? Because we should be calling it a crisis of this nature. It is a crisis. So, firstly, it, it is simple. You know, it doesn't need uh, uh, you know some kind of inspiration from out there. It is very simple. The government must simply align the citizenship to what the constitution is saying, because the registry staff and the registrar general at um, the Home Affairs Department in Zimbabwe. They keep saying that uh, we are applying the citizenship act, uh, despite the fact that it is contrary to the constitution. Uh, so, secondly, the attitude there are, there are so many administrative barriers um, at the at the registry offices. Because in 2003, the government of Zimbabwe realized the folly of their actions and decisions that they decided to do away with that requirement to renounce uh, citizenship within six months. They said, "No, look, we are giving you all the time you you have." Please do so. But those who have attempted to do so, firstly, it is so costly. You are looking at over 100 US dollars that is required even for, for one to do that. And a lot of the, of the people, the migrants, uh, do not have that kind of money. The cost of travel to the registry center is also prohibitive. The hostile attitude of registry officials to any person who is perceived to be of foreign origin uh, has also made uh, this difficult. Uh, and, and many of them end up, uh, you know, uh, giving up on, 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 on trying to, to, to rectify their situation or reclaim the Zimbabwean citizenship that they lost in 2001. This is definitely... 
Lloyd, I was just going to say yeah. this is definitely a, a growing crisis in the sense that with future generations, um, you know, accessibility to get things done, um, you know, how are they then their children going to be able to go to school? How are they their children going to be able to grow and develop their futures um, with regards to this issue of, of uh, statelessness? Precisely, Lulu, I mean, you, you're, you're quite correct. Because now, because of their statelessness, uh, which means that, uh, you know, they don't have a, a birth certificate, they don't have an ID, they don't have a passport. A plethora of their human rights is violated. Children do not have access to education. They can't write public examinations. In some cases, you cannot be enrolled in a good public school. You, uh, you cannot uh, get a job because the employer wants your ID. You cannot open a, a bank account, uh, you know, to participate in the formal economy. You cannot even buy a SIM card because your, your ID will be required. So there is a plethora of human rights here that are being violated. And this is the concern of Amnesty International. I mean, you can't even own a house, you know. <laughs> so so there, there's a lot in terms of economic, social, and cultural rights that are, uh, are being violated. And, I mean, we are actually even scared of what's going to happen when uh, stateless children, women, and men want to get vaccinated uh, because we ask where is your identity, your mm. documents. You need to have some form of identification. Now, Lloyd, unfortunately, we have run out of time, but very quickly, Amnesty is calling on authorities to act. What recommendations um, are you putting on the table in terms of what needs to be done very briefly? Okay, briefly, I mean, uh, the government of Zimbabwe must allocate uh, an adequate budget for a comprehensive census. There going to be, there's going to be a census uh, uh, this year or next year um, so that they can determine the, the number of people that are stateless and disaggregate all the data. And they must adopt, uh, you know, change the policies, the policies at the Office of the Registry, uh, Registrar General, um, so that people do not get frustrated in, uh, you know, getting their citizenship, restoring their citizenship. And also the victims, the descendants of uh, victims of Google only in they must be accorded all the uh, registration documents that they require, their certificate, uh, ID, without a, a hassle or requirement that they produce the certificates of their parents who were killed during Google only in the 1980s. Lloyd. They must also, yeah, thank you so much. I, I, unfortunately, I have to cut you there. Um, we'll leave it there for now. Thank, thank you. you so much for joining for joining us. And we will get an update from you um, with regards to how Zimbabwe's government reacts to your recommendations um, at a later stage and find out how that process is going. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Lulu. That's uh, uh, Amnesty International's researcher, uh, Lloyd Covea, joining us on the line. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time.
You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802. Now, the ninth, uh, the ninth Annual Fabulous Women Awards will again shine the spotlight on South Africa's outstanding women later this year. The awards, which are the brainchild of award-winning businesswoman and philanthropist Ponzo Manzi, started in 2013 through her Fabulous Girls Foundation. Manzi's foundation has been helping and inspiring young people, particularly girls from disadvantaged backgrounds, to dream beyond their current circumstances. For more on what to expect from this year's awards on the 7th of August, we are now joined on the line by Sinamile Mlongo, Fabulous Woman Awards spokesperson. Sinamile, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much. Now, first, give us a brief overview of the awards and what exactly they're about. Okay, so the Fabulous Women Awards, at its core, actually celebrates the spirit of sisterhood. So this year, the awards are themed Women in Leadership. The annual awards have been created to honor women who possess ethical leadership, vision, innovation, excellence, and an entrepreneurial drive with the ultimate goal of uh, being a, a presenting role models that women can actually aspire to. Now, let's talk about the significance of these awards and efforts to empower women. Okay. So, Lulu, this event actually seeks to showcase the positive woman role model in our society. Um, this enabling young ladies and women to be inspired by the nominees who um, actually have a spirit of excellence um, and they exhibit a can-do attitude and resilience in the challenges that they face in their lives. So this in turn then empowers women to dig deep and live their truth against all odds. Um, Lulu, you would know amidst all the challenges that women face um, in South Africa in their careers, their private lives and educational institutions, the Fabulous Women Awards actually uphold the integrity of women and society and actually reminds the people of this country the crucial role that women play. That's so true, Nelson Amelia. Uh, reflecting on, on one of your categories, uh, Fabulous Girl of the Year, describe the kind of girl that uh, is deserving of such an award and what exactly you're looking for. Okay, so the type of girl um, or young lady we're looking at is re resilient. She embodies the principles of sisterhood, uh, this is a girl who up, uplifts uh, those around her. Uh, she's a positive influence on her peers, and she strives to do her best always. Um, this young lady or, or the type of young girl we're looking for is not a pushover, and she does not succumb to peer pressure. So we're looking for uh, young girls that um, exhibit this um, and then can actually be an inspiration to uh, young ladies growing up uh, and, and her peers. Now, just to touch on something, um, you know, that the, the, the country is watching and seeing um, the unfortunate uh, passing of a young girl who was experiencing some bullying and uh, unfortunately took her own life. And now um, one of the, the perpetrator is now also under suicidal watch. How does these sort of, 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 of uh, a positive, um, you know, the awards, uh, fa a fabulous women awards. How do we incorporate what's happening um, in the country on 
you know, a, a very big scale that uh, is seemingly becoming a pandemic. I'm calling it a pandemic yes. because literally on a monthly basis, these videos go viral and it's young black girls. No, it, it really is um, extremely tragic. Um, and our condolences go out to Lufuna Mubungo's uh, family and the community at large. But this is exactly what uh, the Fabulous Woman Foundation is about. So behind this award, uh, there's actually work that is done at a high school level um, with young women. So we take them through a boot camp and we kind of mentor them. And we speak to them about issues of self-confidence, of grooming, um, of, of academic excellence, you know, and we deal with issues of abuse. And I think what, what we could do as a country, because this reflects on us as a society, is have more initiatives like uh, what the Fabulous Woman Foundation is doing to empower young women um, and actually um, get to know them at a personal level. Because w w um, when I looked into this case, uh, one of the things that was said in media was the perpetrator uh, was actually previously also tried to commit suicide uh, because of issues of, of a boyfriend. So this, what happened, the incident is actually a much deeper, deeper uh, issue. And we kind of need to get to a point where we're closer to these girls. So as a foundation, this is what we are championing and this is what we are about, to, 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 to get down to grassroots level, to understand the problem um, so that we may be a solution to uh, the issues that uh, that arise in our society. And how how exactly can people be part of the nomination process, which is closing at the end of this month? Okay, so uh, you can definitely go and uh, visit our website at fabuloswomenawards.co.za and then you can select uh, the nominations category in the menu. And on that page, you'll be able to fill out your nominee's details. You'll be able to pick the category um, in which you want to nominate her. You'll be able to write a motivation um, and tell us why this woman is deserving to win in that category. And then uh, the event will actually be uh, live streamed um, also on the 7th of August. So uh, viewers and fans can definitely follow us on our Instagram page at, at Women Awards and on our Facebook page, Fabulous Women Awards, for the latest um, uh, news and updates about the awards. Thank you. Sinamile, thank you so much for joining us this morning and all the best. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to speak to, um, you know, the women who, who take home some of these awards, especially the Fabulous Girl of the Year Award. Thank you for joining us this morning. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Yuri. Thank you so much, Yuri. Bye. Well, that's uh, Sinamile Mshong, spokesperson for Fabulous Women Awards, uh, joining us on the line. Our economics update up next with Onilin Zinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Looking at your economics news update, following a stalemate in the Nile Dam talks in Kinshasa, Sudanese Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok has suggested that further talks be held at heads of state level. In a letter written on April 13th to Ethiopian Prime Minister Abe Ahmed and Egyptian Prime Minister Mustafa Kemal, Dr. Hamdok says that negotiations over the filling of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam have reached an impasse and the three countries should now revoke Article 5 of the Declaration of 
of Principles signed in March 2015. The article says that if the parties are unable to resolve the dispute through consultation or negotiations, they may jointly request for conciliation, mediation or referring the matter for consideration of the heads of state or government. Hamdrock says negotiations have dragged on for 10 years and that additional intervention by the U.S. and the World Bank have not borne any fruit, yet GERD has reached critical stages. Therefore, the three countries urgently need to reach an agreement. The National African Farmers Union of South Africa says that the attacks on farm workers and farmers will jeopardize food security in the country. This follows recent attacks on two farm dwellers who were fatally shot and a third man injured on a farm in the Mpumalanga province. The union says poverty also subjected farm dwellers to abuse and killings. The union's president, Mutsebi Matlala, says these attacks need urgent attention. The impact of killing farmers, but more importantly of killing the farm workers and farm dwellers, is indeed a drawback towards ensuring that the sector grows to fit the South African community. So therefore we are condemning the killing of farmers. We are condemning this act of violence on the workers, on the farm dwellers, The United Nations says it will need at least 82 million U.S. dollars to feed and provide basic necessities to thousands of people displaced by an ongoing insurgency in Mozambique. The World Food Programme, the U.N.'s specialized agency for food, says it is facing a task of providing basic food aid to more than 950,000 people, mostly in the northern Mozambique in Cabo de Galda province. WFP spokesperson Thompson Piri said the agency expects numbers to soar as militants continue targeting villages. On Monday, Mozambique government, the Mozambican government said it needs at least 78.9 million US dollars for a plan to manage displaced people from Cabo de Galdo attacks. China's economy grew a record 18% in the first quarter of 2021 compared to the same quarter last year. This suggests that the country's recovery from the impact of the coronavirus pandemic is accelerating. It is the biggest jump in gross domestic products since China started keeping quarterly records in 1992. The BBC's Robin Brandt reports. January, February, March of 2020 was when this country pretty much came to a halt. It's when the COVID-19 outbreak was at its very worst here. So we could expect to see uh, a rebound like this, but nonetheless, it's incredibly healthy and the rate of growth is accelerating as well. So that shows you not only that China managed to contain COVID here relatively quickly, but that it's continuing with a sustained, resilient growth going forward as well. There are concerns about debt. Much of that recovery in the last year has been fueled by supply side, uh, construction and fueled by government debt as well. And frankly, that just can't go on. Lastly, the United States has announced sweeping sanctions against Russia, expelling tens of its diplomats, focusing on dozens of companies and individuals. The White House has blamed Moscow for a range of harmful activities. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue reports. They're really targeted at three separate areas. That's the interference in the 2020 election, which the intelligence services here say Russia attempted to do to try and get Donald Trump re-elected. 
There's also this issue of the so-called SolarWinds cyber attack. That was a piece of software that was hijacked, according to Washington, by Russia's foreign intelligence service, the SVR, and that infiltrated a number of federal agencies. And then there's the question also of the ongoing occupation of Crimea, where there are already sanctions in place, but more being put in place. Now looking at your financial indicators, one U.S. dollar is trading at 380.10 Nigeria Naira, 10.77 Botswana Pula, 106.07 Kenyan Shilling, and 22.14 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the dollar is trading at 5.63 Brazilian Heo, 76.42 Russian Ruble, 74.92 Indian Rupees, and 6.52 Chinese One, and 14.26 South African Rands. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 72 pence to the British pounds and 84 cents to the euro. And looking at your commodities, gold is trading at $1,762 and platinum at $1,195 per ounce, while the price of Brent crude oil is quoted at $66.95 a barrel. Up next, your sports news update. In your sports, Proteus coach Mark Boucher has reiterated that former captain A.B. de Villiers remains in the frame for the men's 2020 Cricket World Cup to be hosted by India later in the year. The 37-year-old de Villiers, who is currently playing in the Indian Premier's League with the Royal Challengers Bangalore, retired in 2018, having played 114 tests, 228 ODIs and 78 T20s. Lastly, the South African national under-23 football team will soon be gearing up for the Tokyo Olympic Games. Coach David Notwane has his eyes on 40 players from which he will select his final 23-man squad that he will take to Japan. Interestingly, in the preliminary squad, Melody Sundowns are dominating in the overaged players category. Notwane has also included England-based Percy Dao in his squad. Notwane says his team will play in an invitational tournament in June. With 100 days to go before the Tokyo Olympics kickoff, the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee today outlined plans for the Tokyo 2020 Games, which were cancelled last year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Chief Medical Officer Patogusha Zondi confirmed that this will indeed be an Olympics like no other, from constant testing every four days to participants to the, well, not clapping or hugging when celebrating victories. Bottom line is, the games are set to continue. For SABC News, I'm Tabi Sositole in Johannesburg. Channel African News, I'm Onelin Tsinsi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
That's it for today on Africa Rise and Shine. And for the week, from myself, Lulu Gabu, and the team, thank you for joining us. From all of us here, it's goodbye for now. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Goodbye and keep safe.